You're listening to the Feral House Podcast, Episode 5. Listeners to the Feral House podcast, I have with me today a very special guest, and that is Homer Flynn of the Cryptic Corporation. Homer is the spokesperson and manager of The Residence, and he agreed to speak with me today for the podcast for all of your listening pleasure about the upcoming book by The Residence, The Brick Eaters. It's a first for The Residence. It's a first for Feral House, as it's a novel, something that we've never published before. So welcome, Homer. How are you? Uh, I'm good. Very good these days. Uh, That's so good to hear. Uh, I'm going to jump into it with just a few questions. Something, when I've spoken to it about, to friends, is The Residents wrote a novel. Can you tell me a little bit about how this came about? Okay, well, The Residents, people who have followed their career has certainly noticed over the last 10 to 15 years a a more distinct narrative course to um, the work that they have done. You know, they got involved in CD-ROM. It was very narrative back, actually back to the mid-90s. That's actually 20 years ago. And more and more their albums, their last album was called uh, The Ghost of Hope. And The Ghost of Hope was a series of fairly long pieces, all narrative-based and all based on authentic train wrecks from the late 19th and early 20th century. Once again, there's been a kind of a growing interest in narrative work from the residents over the past several years. But some of the ideas that they have had felt like they were, you know, too long-form uh, for what could be done with music or in a, a music album. So they started bandying one of these ideas about uh, really about five or six years ago. And, uh, and ultimately the result is the Brick Eaters. I think it's interesting as the residents have such a great reputation as being early adopters of technology throughout their career. And yet the idea of as the progression of the output of the residents' work is going back to a narrative, to a book, is almost antithetical to the ideas of video technology and embracing it. Did, did that consideration of making something printed um, in a book format, in very kind of an old-world technology, if you will, have any bearing on some of the thought process and the creation? Well... The residents um, were huge fans of Breaking Bad. They were really not, they're not really much of TV watchers in general, but the whole idea of Breaking Bad, uh, somebody said, you guys really need to watch this. And um, they became just very intrigued at that point by the form of, uh, you know, serial TV. And and seeing, once again, it's an outlet for, very strong outlet for narrative. And uh, so in some ways, I think the Brick Eaters may actually be considered more as almost like a long-form treatment for something that could become a TV series. Uh, so in that way, it's it's not strictly confined to, you know, 
uh, a form uh, that came out in what the 16th or 17th century. Uh, it's actually in some ways looking a little more forward than that. Well, there there's a teaser for all the listeners. Anybody out there who's working in television production maybe should uh, contact the Cryptic Corporation for their next TV project. I think it's interesting is when one follows the residents' work, when one's a fan of the work, is this idea of anonymity as well as is put forth by Ensenada, the theory of obscurity, this idea over the course that the work itself almost becomes more powerful when it doesn't have a singular attributed creator. And yet, as you mentioned when we first started uh, speaking, is that in that progression over time is some of the contributors have now worked to create separate, essentially, works and identities. Could you talk a little bit about some of the other residents' projects? In, in terms of other projects, you mean projects that they're working on now? Correct. Well, they had just finished, I mean, speaking of, you know, the brand of the residents in a way and kind of spreading or enlarging the brand, they had just finished an interesting project called I Am a Resident. And the whole idea of I Am a Resident, it was a, it was contextualized as a, as a crowdfunder. But the whole idea really was to, enable their fans to create their own versions of resident songs. And, you know, they had this idea, I don't know, a year, two years ago or something like that. And they thought, well, this could be kind of a cool thing. Maybe, maybe we'll get 30 or 40 songs and, you know, we'll pick out the 15 or so 15 or 20 that are, uh, we like the best and make an album out of that. Well, they actually had 197 songs submitted, um, which completely blew their mind. And a lot of them are really high quality. Um, so now uh, this is actually being manufactured now. The, the album has already gone out to the, uh, the crowdfunders uh, who, who, you know, pledged on this. This went through Pledge Music. When they got all of these different songs, ultimately they decided, you know, that's just not going to do justice to pick out 15 or 20. It's not going to do justice to, you know, the interest, really interesting and compelling body of work that we've received here. So what they did was they went in and they used that as the body, they went into that body of work and edited, looped, overdubbed, essentially creating an album-length mashup of their own material as interpreted by their fans and then ultimately as reinterpreted by them. And uh, it wound up being a much more, I think, interesting and compelling project than what they had originally intended. Um, yeah, go ahead. Um, I, I think that's actually quite fascinating. It leads a little bit into one of the questions, kind of observations um, I had in doing some research, which is I'm intrigued again by that long history, the idea of anonymity, of obscurity. But by embarking on this project, the I Am Resident project, all of a sudden 
the question no longer is who is a resident because it's now everyone is a resident. Was that uh, uh, something that was in your thinking as you uh, and the residents worked on this project? Absolutely. I mean, there's no question about it. Uh, I mean, the, the residents in many ways like to see themselves as sort of a, you know, the, the whole idea of not having identities in a certain way creates the idea of, of pure creativity. It releases it from the idea of human identities. And from their point of view, this idea of a fairly open and free creativity, uh, which they see as the essence of the residents, well, this is exists in everybody. And so the whole idea really was to enable the inner resident in everyone. So from that point, indeed, um, there are no more residents per se. Everyone is a resident. I like that conceptual idea of the of realness um, because I know that becomes a question. I've looked on some of the fan discussion boards about who is a resident, who was a real resident, and who was performing under a mask at any given time at any show. Is so de facto what the residents? What I'm hearing being said, and you can confirm this as their spokesman, maybe, is that um, every time the residents perform, you are seeing a resident's performance. There is no delineation between who is and who is not. Is that a fair uh, assumption? Um, well, I'm not sure. I mean, I think I understand what you're saying. And yes, actually, that is correct. Um, the whole idea of the residents is to create a blanket identity. And ultimately, when you see a resident's performance, it's true. You're not, you're not seeing a series of performers up there. You're seeing the residents up there. All right. So one of the questions uh, gleaned from the Internet, the great unwashed of the Internet, is about gaming and virtual realities. Um, have the residents given much thought about virtual realities, given uh, the existing work about creating their own reality? Well, you know, the residents, sort of the last, in a way, major flurry or dalliance that they had with, you know, kind of more pop culture at large, uh, was what I refer to as the CD-ROM era from the mid-90s. And um, they had a couple of CD-ROMs. The first one was called Freak Show. It came out on Voyager. But the next one was called Bad Day on the Midway. And both of these are very carnival-esque, uh, you know, sideshow-themed pieces. Um, but the, while Freak Show was actually the most successful in a way, it was a real groundbreaker at the time, they really took a lot of those ideas and expanded on them much further with Bad Day on the Midway. And if you go back and look at Bad Day on the Midway now, it actually is a very good template for VR, for a VR experience. Um, it's extremely crude uh, compared to, I mean, you know, you're looking at mid-90s technology. 
Um, but ultimately, within the game, the player inhabits the personality of several different characters, and you have the ability to jump from one character to another. And as you inherit, inhabit one character's personality, you read that character's thoughts on the screen. And you're only able to go where that character would have a reason to go. Um, and ultimately, by confronting other characters and having conversations with them, and then switching from one character to another, you ultimately figure out what the plot of the story is. But once again, it, it, it's all very first-person point of view as you explore the environment of this kind of seedy, rundown carnival. I find it interesting uh, that in that scenario, um, the Brick Eaters, the novel by the residents, has a similar idea of narrative construct in that it's very first person, as well as the reality is a reality that's constructed. And though it may seem familiar terrain at first, it starts to become a bit surreal. Do you have any commentary on what the residents say or think about these ideas of false or surreal realities or alternate realities, how they inform their work? Well, you know, they love the idea of the false narrator. Um, the whole, the whole idea that you have this person that draws you into the story. And then ultimately the further you get into it, the more you begin to wonder exactly who this person is and, you know, how, how much their version of reality can be trusted. Um, but at the same time, they they also really enjoy you know, a construct where you try to pull someone into a reality that ultimately becomes increasingly fragmented and far out as you as the further you get into it. I'm a fan of the unreliable narrator, especially the one we meet in the Brick Eaters. It, it, I think, and that's an element in both the Brick Eaters book, as well as I think in the body of the resident's work, is there's a sense of humor uh, that throughout, you can, it's a through line. There's always a sense of humor that the residents don't seem to take themselves too seriously, uh, but they also don't take their fans and listeners too seriously. Uh, can you confirm or deny the residents are, in fact, funny people? Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, it, 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 at times the residents have been characterized as being overly dark, but to me, there's always a sense of humor within within that darkness. And yeah, they like to have fun with what they're doing, and and hopefully the people that they, their fans will ultimately recognize that. Uh, you know, an, another project in a, in a similar way that they had been working on, I mean, this, and this is actually regenerating or kind of resurrecting an old project. One of their albums uh, from, you know, 30 years ago called God in Three Persons, um, once again, is, is all told from the first-person point of view of an unreliable narrator. And this guy, this story is happening at some indefinite point in the future where this guy is looking back on 
something that he was involved in 20 or 30 years older, you don't, or earlier, you don't really know. And he was the manager of a pair of Siamese twin faith healers. And once again, it, it's, it's exactly the same kind of scenario where this guy is reminiscing about these things that he was in this crazy situation that he was involved with years ago. But the further it goes on, the more you go, well, who is this guy? What, what is he? Is any of this true? Is he making it all up? Or uh, is it all just filtered through the, the, the fog and uh, the veil of memories years ago? Um, but anyway, um, the residents have been working on that as um, a theater piece uh, and are making interesting, interesting progress with that, too. Well, that's exciting to hear. That's something definitely for fans to look forward to. One of the, uh, a question we, we got from the, again, one of the wags on the internet, and it has a, a bit of darkness to it um, in the sense that none of us can stop time and that we are all subject to mortality. Um, yet, given the construct of the residence, uh, someone asked if, like Menudo, I think, referring to the Puerto Rican singing group, not the actual um, Caribbean dish of tripe. Um, but like Menudo, is there a case for, or the provisions made by the cryptic corporation for the residents to exist um, forever? Well, that's an interesting question that has come up several times in the last um, year or two. And once again, the, the 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 sort of essence of the residence that we have been referring to, um, which is to say, everyone is a resident. Well, given given that construct, uh, there's absolutely no reason why the residents can't continue forever. And I think they're very charmed by that idea. They're just looking for the next generation of residents now. Oh, that's exciting. There is a call to action for all of our feral fans. I would, I'm going to suggest yeah. that they, uh, people channel their best residents and uh, we'll, we'll help you. If, you're, if you feel that you have the resident in you, you can contact Feral House and, and we, we will direct you appropriately to the appropriate personage. Um, so one of the things that the residents has been doing lately um, is a lot of live performance and touring. Uh, it's funny that I've read, there's so many great stories of live performances um, gone tremendously well, as well as performances that go off the, uh, off the rails a bit due to some of the technical requirements of having the costumes and suits and uh, kind of that's the things that to disguise the actual performers. Um, it, do you find yourself ready to be done at all with the costume, with um, that idea of a mask or a facade in during live performance? Um, no, I don't think so. I mean, to me, there needs to be some sort of barrier or veil, if you wish, between the residents um, and the audience. I mean, it, that's part of the mystique. And, I mean, 
what would you think of Santa Claus if he shaved his beard? Um, you know, it, it, I, I often refer to this in terms of like a, a magician um, with his tricks. And it's like once you know what the trick is, it's really not very interesting anymore. Um, it's, it's all about, once again, it's really all about mystique and, and maintaining that mystique. And I think uh, the costumes and the masks are, are a huge part of that. Now, let me ask the more psychological version of that, which is in that Janesian breakdown of a bicameral mind of being, having the residents have to essentially uphold a facade and yet they get to enjoy uh, a reality of their own privacy, unlike modern stardom. Um, has that, over the course of your experience as the manager with Cryptic Corporation, has it had any negative effects to the the individuals who are part of that construct? I don't know that it's had a negative effect on the individuals. It's it certainly had a negative effect on the crypto corporation's ability to promote them. I mean, um, you know, people want stars, people want personalities and the residents are sort of the ultimate anti-star or anti-personality. And, um, you know, when, when I'm doing interviews for the residents, um, most journalists, uh, most media people, well, they would rather be talking to one of the residents than talking to me. Um, so in, in that regard, I think it has been a detriment. But in terms of the, the individuals involved, um, the whole idea of creating separation between a, a, a public persona and a private or personal persona, uh, that space was very important to them. And they have maintained that space. It's still there. And that still works. It's still a good thing. Well, I'm a big fan of, personally, of the Olipo. Um, folks may have heard me mention it before. So I'm, I'm in love with what you've achieved as the manager of, and essentially bearing the brunt of media inquiries and still holding up while um, defending the, this position uh, for the residents, for the performers, and for the creators. As you move forward towards uh, this next decade of work, you mentioned that there's the theater project, um, there, you're finishing up the I Am uh, a Resident project, there's new albums, and you mentioned also that there might be an upcoming film project. Can you talk to me a little bit more about that? You know, this is something that is, I'm, I'm going to contextualize this uh, with something that is sort of legendary among residents' fans, and that is a film project that they worked on from 1972 to 1976 called Vileness Fats. And the whole idea at that time was to create, they felt like they were creating the ultimate underground movie of all times. And they could see that video was going to be the coming thing. Um, there were, 
they were right with that. They were unfortunately, you know, 30 or 40 years ahead of their time. But, um, ultimately they went out and got some, um, video cameras. I think they called, they referred to this as like industrial quality video at the time it was half inch reel to reel black and white video. And, so they were creating these amazing sets. The whole thing was scripted. Um, they got a lot of their friends and coworkers to come in and shoot. And they, this was going to be a feature length film. And they shot about 60 to 75% of the script over the course of four years. And at that point, they realized that ultimately the quality of what they were doing technically was so poor that they were never going to be able to show it to anybody except gathering a bunch of friends around somebody's living room and showing it on TV. And, you know, their ambition for it was greater than that. Uh, and that realization caused them to really lose a lot of impetus and, and motivation towards the project. Um, but, you know, you could watch large Scenes, scenes of it on YouTube now. Um, it has been released. 20, 30 minute segments of it have been released a couple of times. Once on VHS uh, cassette back in the 80s, and then um, there was a kind of best of residence DVD uh, called uh, Icky Flicks that came out, I think, in 2002. And there's a really nice portion of it on there. But over the years, the idea of of finishing the film came up several times. Uh, but the last time it did, which was probably about 10 years ago, the resident said, no, that's just not, that's not going to happen. Uh, they realized that a lot of the charm of the original video, and it has a lot of charm. A lot of that charm was based on naivete and you really don't go back and create naivete, not, not true naivete. You can imitate it, but you can't really, it, it only exists within its own context. And so the idea of finishing it was kind of just permanently put aside until this filmmaker, Don Hardy, came along with the idea of doing a documentary on the residence, which he did. It's called Theory of Obscurity, and it came out about three or four years ago. But Don became very obsessed with the violence fats material as he was digitizing the residents huge, uh, catalog of, of film and video. And so he started talking to the residents about this. And at that point, they then became intrigued with the idea of not finishing it, but doing a brand new film that recontextualized a lot of the material from Vilas Fats. And so that's the project that they are working on now. Um, they have done a fundraising trailer for it. Um, and ultimately, at this point, it's my job to go out and try to find money to uh, shoot the movie. Um, at this point, we have interesting contacts. We have a... Uh, a French producer who is extremely committed to the project. Uh, we have a German producer who's kind of interested, but sitting on the sidelines right now, waiting to see what happens. 
um, and, and a couple of more similar um, contacts. Uh, I will be going to L.A. myself in a couple of weeks and having meetings with people. Um, once again, trying to find the, the money in order to be able to shoot the film and, and make this happen. Well, we'll definitely keep fans updated on from the Feral House Process Media website. Um, I think it's exciting for all the listeners to hear about all the new projects that are happening with the residents. I think that there's always an interesting relationship between uh, fans and artists. Um, and now in this modern age where the fandom has started creating things on their own, you, this whole phenomenon, you'll hear, you see more like kind of in comic book culture of fan fiction, the fandom gets referred to as like a, almost an entity unto itself. Do the residents find any inspiration in the almost cult-like devotion of their fans? Once again, uh, to, to refer back to the I Am A Resident project, um, they found huge inspiration in the fans' versions of their own material. Once again, uh, enough inspiration in that to go back and rethink the project and and make something, I think, much more compelling out of it than it was originally intended. Well, I think that's exciting for people to, to hear about. Uh, I think one of the essence of, of people being a fan is um, that, that strange energy exchange that happens, that fans want to be acknowledged. And I think the residents do an amazing job of both responding to and um, essentially inspiring their own fans to creation. I think that's an amazing uh, circle. One of the things that we want to let our listeners know is that Homer will, on behalf of the residents, making a, a number of select appearances throughout um, mostly California, but could be other places um, to speak about the residents' work as well as the Brick Eaters book. Uh, Homer, do you have any closing remarks or anything that you'd like to let our Feral House fiends know? You know, the main thing to me... Um ultimately is that I think more than anything else, the residents started because doing what they're doing seemed like it would be fun. And it was, and it has been, and ultimately they're still having fun. So as, as long as that continues, um, the residents will just keep trucking into the future. And we are sure happy for it. And we are proud to be the publisher uh, under our imprint process media of the resident's first novel, The Brick Eaters. Thank you so much for spending time with me today. I appreciate it, Homer. Uh, my pleasure, Christina. My pleasure. And, um, you know, I have to say that I feel like uh, Feral House is actually a great home for the residents. It will be interesting to see, you know, what, how far we can take it. I think it's a good fit. We're excited to have you. Hey fiends, thanks for listening to the Feral House podcast. We do this about once a month, talking to Feral House and Process Media writers, as well as members of the extended Feral family. You're part of the family. Let us know if you have any questions or if you have an idea of someone we should talk to. You can send me a note at press at feralhouse.com, P-R-E-S-S -S at feralhouse.com. 